One answer I've heard recently is that human beings are the one creature that we know of um, that use our brains to tell stories. As far as we know, most other animals don't have what they call an episodic memory. And so, uh, in other words, we're able to travel back in the past in our minds, so to speak, and then narrate that past to each other. No other creature does that, at least to the degree that we do. Okay, maybe there are creatures, and you've probably read stories about this, chimpanzees that tell stories, but you get my point, right? Storytelling is, is unique to and universal to our experience. It's as old as language itself. You know, there's evidence 30,000 years old at least in France, in these caves in France, of stories being told on these cave drawings. Um, so for time immemorial, stories have been told to impart lessons and to impart wisdom and to build empathy, to give meaning to our lives, to share a little bit about who we are, what our deepest hopes and concerns and wrestlings are. And the reason I mention that this morning, as sort of an entry point to this sermon, and why this is important as we continue this One Another series, is that uh, we come to this One Another this morning in John 13 that's really a story, essentially. It's just this picture of the life God invites us to. And here's what I mean by this. In Galatians 5, uh, that first reading we heard, we heard Paul, who's the author, offer instruction on how we ought, he even says ought, should, (laughs) I've been told not to should on anybody, um, how we should treat each other. He says, be committed to serving one another and doing so, demonstrate the love of God. There's a a precept there. He's prescribing service to us. And if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know this is something that it's primary to what it means to be a Christ follower is to serve, right? Um, however, if you notice in John, who's the author of that second reading, the Gospel of John, he doesn't say those words. Nowhere in that reading does he say, serve one another. John doesn't say it. Jesus doesn't say it. Instead, John narrates a story to us on the night before Jesus was betrayed and before he died. This happened. He just tells a story. He get, Jesus gets up from a meal. He takes off his robe. He wraps a towel around his waist. And then he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Nowhere does it say that Jesus served his disciples. Though we might in, infer service here, and I'm sure all of you did. Uh, Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't give a proposition, a command. Instead, he offers a portrait of service. And then, in that way, he embodies what it looks like to be a servant leader. He doesn't prescribe service. He describes it, if you will. And so it's that framework, the framework of story, that I'd like to enter into this text with you this morning. And as we do so, I'd like us to consider a few chapters, if you will, to continue the metaphor of of this story. Um, And we'll do this by just looking at this one phrase, that he washed their dirty feet, okay? So the first chapter is that he washed their dirty feet. This is the object if to break it down like a sentence, I guess, the object of service. Um, And then the second chapter is he washed their dirty feet, which is sort of the goal of service, if you will, as I just break this down for us. And then finally, we're going to look at the subject of service is he washed their dirty feet. So if if you put the emphasis on this statement in that way, in those parts of the story, break it down, the object, the feet, the goal, the washing, the subject, Jesus, the disciples, what I, I think you get is a more memorable, at least, um, definition or way to understand this command, serve one another. Okay, so that's how we want to look at it this morning. All right? So first, he washed their dirty feet. This is the object of service, the feet. 
And, and there's two senses of, by the way, just a quick uh, a sidebar here, um, two senses to the word serve or servant that are translated in the Greek or from the Greek. <clears throat> One means bond servant, and you probably heard this before, um, particular form of servitude or actually enslavement in that time. And um, I've often heard, and I'm sure you've heard as well, uh, that in, this is a chosen form of service, right? That the bond servant being someone who's been set free by their master and then nonetheless has chosen to remain in the home that they have served in. And again, just as a quick sidebar, because it's important, I just need to say this. Nowhere in this passage, not once, does Jesus correlate or equate slavery with discipleship. Never. Indeed, Jesus explicitly rejects slavery as a metaphor in all the Gospels. Jesus never uses it, which is just another way of just saying, I think, that any form of racism, either institutional or otherwise, is just categorically evil. Any, it's not of God. And any system, any experience, any role in society that seeks to diminish another human being in any way, shape, or form has to be confronted and dismantled. And the, the church is calling us to do this. This is why we have a ministry of racial justice and reconciliation, because we know that within the church, and particularly the church we're serving, there are still institutions, there are still, there are still things that work against other people, and we want to break those down, break down the wall of division, as Paul talks about. And I don't want there to be any ambiguity about that in our community. Any teaching that would either explicitly or implicitly, okay, endorse slavery or racism of any kind has to be challenged. And so I just want to challenge that on the front end as we talk about service, okay? We're not talking about that. The other sense of the word that I just want to spend time digging into is this sense that's held even now, which is the sense to wait on. So you have this sense of being a servant, and then you have a sense of waiting on people, where we get our word wait. This is where we get our word waiter from. Actually, if you go to restaurants in the hospitality industry, service implies that you wait on another person and attend to their needs. And there's a lot of ways you can do that. You know, a lot of really congenial ways you can do that. In fact, if you remember that show on PBS, we binged Downton Abbey years ago now. And how many of you guys watched that? Please show me. Yes. We're in that with you. <laughs> that was a moment, a cultural moment. Um, there's all these valets and ladies' maids and butlers who are just there to wait on who? The Lord and the lady, right? Get them ready for a party. I mean, what did they do? They went to parties all day, every day. I and mean, that's all they did. Seriously. And that still happens, I'm sure, within certain circles of society. But that's just a way of illustrating that in different cultures in, around the world, there are some very pleasant and sophisticated ways of serving others, of waiting on others, aren't there? Here's the key, though. Foot washing wasn't one of those. <laughs> uh, this is not a congenial way of Jesus inviting us to serve one another. And here's what I mean by that. There, the theologian Andrew Lincoln, he says this about foot washing. He says, most foot washing in the ancient world was a menial task. It involved washing off not just dust and dirt, but also the remains of human excrement. Since human waste was just thrown in the streets then. There was no sanitation or no sewage. And so the, the act of doing this as an act of hospitality was normally assigned to the slaves and servants of the absolute lowest status, usually female slaves, since they were not viewed as people in that time, so much so that foot washing was virtually synonymous with humiliation and shame. And then he goes on to say this, what makes this gospel's account so extraordinary is that there's both no parallel in any literature of that time of a person of higher status doing this voluntarily for someone of lower status, but also Jesus' act represents an assault 
on the usual notions of social hierarchy and a subversion of the normal categories of honor and shame. He's assaulting notions of hierarchy, breaking those down, and then subverting notions of honor and shame. And I love that. Which is a way of saying when Jesus says, wash one another's feet, he doesn't not say fix one another's hair, as in Down Abbey, or do one another's dishes. I mean, that would have been nice. I had college roommates who never did their dishes. It would have been nice just to put a Bible verse up there, right? That might not have actually worked in the college I went to, but he's not doing that. He's saying, he's not calling us to a, a kind of conventional, even pleasing way of serving one another. He's instead demonstrating a call and inviting us into a very countercultural, subversive, and even offensive calling in some ways. You know, I mentioned that Paul correlated this calling of service to an expression of love. Let me, this is a way of understanding it. Um, and you heard the same thread in John 13 that we're told that Jesus here at the end of his life longed to express the depth and the full measure of his love for his disciples. And so he washed their feet. And so service is tied to love. And when you think about it that way, we tend to culturally love those people that we're most attracted to. This is how we are as human beings. And by attraction, I don't mean physical or romantic attraction. We get attracted to people all the time for all kinds of things. We get attracted to people because of their success, how many likes and followers they have on Instagram, you know, or whatever, how popular they are, their power, their connections, their intelligence. You know, we get attracted to certain churches because of the vibe in the room, whatever. Sometimes we're even attracted to people just because of their personality, Right? Like the Enneagram 7's in the room. We love those people. <laughs> the life of the party. Andrew, I'm attracted to you. I love your, your energy, man. You brought it this morning for us. You lift our spirits. And who doesn't need their spirit lifted these days, right? Um, which is just another way of saying we're most often attracted to people for their, their value to us or their assets, right? Every one of us, if I could just speak generally, um, do this. We're just a big bundle of needs in some ways. Like, we need approval, we need comfort, um, we need power, we need control. This doesn't make us unique amongst all the animals. Like, everybody has needs, every creature. And when the human soul senses someone who has the ability to meet a need that you have, one of your needs, you tend to make a beeline for that person. It's like a magnet. And you tend to, we tend to call that love. Or, in this case, we might even call it service. We might think we're serving somebody altruistically, but really out of a sense of our own need. And the question I would want to pose to you, is it really love when we do that? Is it service when we move towards somebody out of a need that we have? C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters actually kind of talks about this. And if you remember that story, this is where he has these two fictional devils having this conversation about their own devilry, if you will. And the one devil says to the other, you know, in human life, We've seen the passion to dominate and digest one fellow's being, one's fellow beings. You've heard that passion in Paul's writing, right? Don't digest and devour each other, but love one another. Um, the devils say to each other, that desire is called love on earth. <laughs> but in hell, we know what it really is. It's hunger. It's really hunger or need. I mean, the, diff- the difficult truth is that when I say I feel love for this person. I feel attracted, or I, I express a desire to serve in some way. Very often, what it really means about me is that I like, I feel better being around this person, 
or this makes me feel better doing this. And I want to feel better because I don't feel good. <laughs> like I'm hungry for approval, acceptance, control, belonging, connection. And in relationship to other people, very often, either subconsciously or consciously, that hunger at least for a time gets satiated. And I'm not so hungry. I'm not so alone. I'm not so uh, just lonely, you know. And so here, to go to the feet of other people and wash those feet is to counter instinctually love other people and love the parts of people that we don't immediately find appealing or attractive. That's what Jesus is trying to say to us. The feet, <laughs> the feet, the parts of people, the stories, the people that you might find altogether uh, infuriating, <laughs> that confuse you, to wash the feet of other people as a metaphor is to intentionally share your life, to participate in the lives of others that baffle you, that perplex you, that you find repulsive, people that get on your nerves. You know, and this might be people you deeply disagree with politically or theologically. We find that all over the world right now. Uh, it might be people right here in this church, feet people. It could be a family member, a member of your own family. As a parent, it could be one of your kids, at least in moments or seasons. You find them to be a foot. Ugh, I do not love this child anymore. It could be your spouse. You're 20 years in, 10 years, you're five years in, and you find that sense of love for one another has changed. I don't feel that love anymore. As I lie next to this person, they feel very strange to me, not very attractive. You're finding you need a redefinition of love. And the good news right now as Jesus washes his disciples' feet, service in love, or love in service, is he's demonstrating a new way to understand love by washing feet. He's showing another way, another way to love, a, a capacity to love that is totally different than attraction. And so my question is, as we move to the next thing, is, is who are the feet people in your life? Where are the feet in your life? Everybody's got feet. You know, like I said, it might be in your own house. It could be in this church. I'm not envisioning we do a foot washing service, by the way. Don't worry. This is a total metaphor. But um, I do want us to consider who and to where is God calling us to serve and challenging us to under like, understand our notions of love. Think about this. Who are those people in your life that you're just struggling with right now? They might be a foot. And how can I posture myself in a different way toward them is the question. Um, so that's the first thing, the object of service, the feet, okay? Stinky, dirty feet. Lovely, huh? <laughs> Here's the second thing, the goal of service. He washed their feet. So we talked about the feet. Let's talk about the washing. I mean, quite simply, foot washing was emblematic of purification in the ancient world. So it was one of the key ways that uh, Jewish people demonstrated that they were clean by washing feet. So whenever, when, when you went into a synagogue or you came into a church or you go to the temple or you go to someone's home, this would be something you would do very first. You would, you would, we would have had jars by the door. You would have removed your shoes. You would have washed your feet. Then they were wearing sandals, so not a big deal. And then whether you have a custom of wearing your sandals inside or shoes inside doesn't matter. It's all symbolic. Um, and the equivalent today would be like removing your shoes when you go to somebody's home where that's the tradition. You see the line of shoes at the door? <laughs> Generally, you're going to remove your shoes because that's their custom. And you're going to 
kind of do that, or, you, or everybody's going to wash their hands before you eat, right? For 20 seconds at least, right? So uh, that's a thing in our house that's not quite, we're not quite there yet, but anyway, that's my story. So the, the fascinating detail, um, and what's important in this room is, uh, and, and by the way, this was done, like I said, at the door, the beginning of a meal, before you started, right? The fascinating detail is that Jesus, if you notice this, he got up during the meal to do this. So the meal's already in progress. They're at the midway point. Like, they've had appetizers. They're in the main course. And then Jesus gets up, gets a towel, wraps it around his waist, starts to wash their dirty feet. And, and, and so this is fascinating because... <laughs> the, like I said, this is usually done at the very beginning of the meal. And so it either means that they hadn't washed their feet. And by the way, we put the dirty feet into the English translations. In the Greek translation, it doesn't say you washed their dirty feet. I think we're just assuming that their feet were, were still dirty. He just washed their feet. So it could be that they hadn't washed their feet, which is probably, I mean, it's, it's possible. Jesus and his disciples are often accused of breaking Jewish laws, like the Sabbath commandment. But I don't, I don't think that's likely. I think they actually had done it, okay? Which gets to the second meaning of this, and this is the goal, and what the washing is intended to convey to us. If they already had their feet washed, okay, can we accept that? And this is in the middle of the meal, then what Jesus does is he's washing their feet a second time. And that's important because at a very basic level, I think what service is meant to convey to us is, is that service is found in the interruptions of life. Opportunities to serve each other are found in the interruptive moments of life. Jesus getting up in the middle of a meal. I mean, there's a choreography to these meals. And he's just breaking that up. And he's, he's disrupting a meal to do something that had already been done, according to their tradition. Um, and there's all kinds of other deeper meanings to this washing. In particular, you saw this in the story between Jesus and Peter talking about sin. And that's there, and that's vital to the story. But on this other level... This interruption to the way they did things, this disruption of the status quo, so to speak, is just another way to understand that life serve, life is in the interruptions, as someone once said. Um, you know, I was a missions pastor, as you guys know, for several years, both here at Bethany and then in our prior church in Pennsylvania. And during those times, I loved to plan service projects and service trips and mission trips, and a lot of you were part of those. We did the serve days, you know, on the, on the fifth Sundays of each of the months. We would serve as a church, if you remember those times. And uh, lots of preparation and planning went into those. It never just happened. And it's been said that humans make plans and God laughs. <laughs> I just, I think there's a lot of laughter by God in those days. I just wonder if God's laughing here. Get, Jesus getting up in the meal doing something that had already been done, completely confusing everybody, as a way to show up in a new and unexpected, unanticipated way, sort of just to disrupt um, and reveal a new way of relating, a new way of being. I mean, just think of how that touch impacted Judas, for example. He washed all their feet, and we know he got around to Judas, the, the dirty, quote-unquote, dirty feet of Judas, you know, this conversation with Peter, and it's not just your feet, Peter, it's your, it's your heart that I'm touching here. And think of the heart of Judas, darkness. And think of this being the last human touch that Judas felt in his life. The touch of Jesus washing his dirty feet. 
Think of the profound nature of that contact. You never know, as you seek to serve someone else, whoever that person is, the profound nature of that contact. You never know. And you can't plan for those moments. You can't anticipate them. They often just happen. You know, Annie, Annie Dillard writes in one place that how we spend our days is how we, you might even say our moments or our meals to use this context. How we spend those is, of course, how we spend our lives. Jesus is meeting us in a moment right here. We're taught at the very early stage of our lives that life is intended to follow this very ordered path, a trajectory, right? A series of calibrated progressions, childhood, young adulthood, middle age, old age, dating, marriage, children, empty nest, low-level job, mid-level job, high-level job, retirement, right? That's how we live life in America. And I, this is what we're taught. And we're probably teaching our kids by just doing it, <laughs> not really even just talking about it. And we know that it often doesn't go that way, that there's a disruption in life. There's a death. There's a sickness. There's a job loss. Um, and then we think, oh gosh, something must be wrong with my life. Or worse, something must be wrong with me. And we try and fix that. That's what we call the midlife crisis. And I think, I wonder if Jesus is just saying, you're not wrong. Your story's not wrong. My story, as it's headed to the cross, is not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Life is in that. There's life in the interruptions, in the disturbances, in the twists, in the turns, in the mishaps, in the missteps, in the storms. I mean, remember Jesus with his disciples in the boat, in the storm, literally saying to them, I was here the entire time and you didn't see me. I was right here. Where's your faith? Life's in the moments of chaos, like pandemics. There's been life this year. Maybe we haven't seen that yet. God revealing God's self all year, all 18, 20 months, however long it's been, I've lost track. Life's in the pauses. Like we've gone through a major pause in our lives this year. And yet if we're sensitive enough to God's presence and what God's doing in the pause and just, and just stopping and listening. You know, there's these psalms in the Bible that have that word selah in them. And if you've seen that in your, in your Bible, some English translations just take it out because it's not translatable in, from Hebrew. Some leave it in and you'll find it. And we just often read right past it. Uh, this Passion Translation, one reason I love it is they leave it in, but they don't leave it as selah. They translate it as pause in God's presence. I love that. There are moments where, like this last year, where we've been forced to pause. A lot of us have been working from home, lost work. Our children have been quarantined. They've been in a 14-mandatory day, whatever. You're, all those things are happening, and you have to pause. You're forced, you're forced in this posture. And I wonder, and I'm speaking to myself here as well, if we're sensitive enough to God's presence and what God's doing in that pause we might have an opportunity to enter more deeply into God's story, enter into this kind of moment with God in our lives, in our home, with our children, with our spouse, with ourselves. And so here's what I'm saying as we return to the call to serve. I think maybe it's just an invitation to relax, just to let your hands off a little bit, loosen your grip on the story that God's writing in your life and just see that these interruptions that come throughout our lives our opportunities, and like to enter into this freely into relationship with people where they're at. 
and how you're, where you're at, and just to let go and let God begin working. Peter had work that needed to be done on his heart, and he res- he's resisting this work. And Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, I even, there's more work to be done on you. Will you let me do it? Will you let go a little bit? Just let me do this. I want to show you something more of myself. How will we posture ourselves to allow God to go to work on us and allow God to serve us and then allow God to serve through us? Okay? So that's the second thing, the, the sort of goal of service, the washing. Okay? Here's the last thing real quick, which is the subject. So I've talked about the object, feet, the goal, interruption, disruption. Here's the last thing, the, the subject of service. What is ser- serving and washing feet really all about? Okay? And we're told in the Gospels that the incarnation of God happened under Pontius Pilate in the jurisdiction of a particular government, a particular territory, in a particular time in history. Very particular. Which is just another way of reminding us that when God entered the human story, our story, he was not a disembodied communicator. He wasn't sort of floating in the sky. Anyway, actually... During the transfiguration, the disciples loved that because they, I mean, Jesus is floating into the sky and they want to make a little hut there, you know, and they want to kind of bottle up that moment because that's transcendent. We think of God as transcendent, but when God fully entered the human story, it was in a human body that learned a certain language or languages, ate certain kinds of food, Walked certain streets. I mean, Jesus walked certain streets, paths, roads, alleys. We would say he had a zip code today. He cultivated certain relationships, and he washed certain people's feet. As far as we know, he washed 12 feet, or 24. (laughs) And I say that because it's been my experience in the church that we tend to spiritualize nearly everything. We spiritualize our language. If you've been around and maybe you've done this, and I've done it, like built, guilty of using prayer language that's very different than your regular language. We spiritualize our conversations. We spiritualize our questions. We even spiritualize our relationships. And I just want to recognize with you that it was Jesus who washed their feet, the real Jesus, the real disciples. And it seems to me if you take that seriously, and our part in it seriously, and take the incarnation of God seriously, that Jesus moved, he took on flesh and blood, like you, like me, and moved into the neighborhood. That means we take the neighborhood we live in seriously. We take the relationships that we have in that neighborhood seriously. Where you live matters is what I'm trying to tell you. You've heard me say this before. You take this congregation seriously. You take this community, Lake City, seriously. The feet of all those places, seriously. And within that context, the conversations and the questions that come out, seriously. The questions that people are asking around justice and race, around sexuality and gender, around what God's doing in our world. You take those seriously. You, li- you learn to listen. You learn to ask more questions. You get curious. God, what are you saying right now? How are you speaking right now? And friends, I'm, I continue to be convicted that this is where God wants to use me, this church, this neighborhood, this family of faith. He wants to use you. If you're here, 
right now, right here. Not somewhere else. Not someone else, you know. But right here, right now, this is where God is at work. So embodiment is really the key to service. You know, one of my favorite theologians and authors, and I'll invite, if I can invite Andrew and Jason back up, is the missional theologian Leslie Newbegin. And he said this. This is a profound statement I'll finish with. Jesus didn't write a book. He didn't write this. Jesus formed a community. Y'all. And this community has at its heart remembering and rehearsing his words. Remember, this is a story that John witnessed that he's remembering and rehearsing. His deeds, his sacraments that are given to us, empowering us to, to renew his life again and again and again. The church, the community of faith, exists in him and for him. He is the center of our life. Its character, our character is given to us by him. And when we're true to that calling, this becomes a place where men, women, and children find the gospel. We find it to be true, and we become part of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. Stories are what make us human. The gospel is a story, and it's a true story. And now we're invited to enter into that story with others through loving service. And so, friends, to all of us, might we hear this calling with sort of a renewed expectation this week. God is desiring to write a new story through each of us, in our families, in our community. Might we find joy and purpose in identifying and washing the feet in our lives. This is not an obligation. This is a joy. It's a privilege to do so. And then might we know that Christ stands with us, kneels with us, bows with us before those people we wash is expressing his life. He's the center of our community as we commit to being more fully present in those lives and those relationships. Christ is the hope of glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God who um, serves us, that you, uh, you did get up from this meal and do this profound thing that was remembered by that community of people and is passed down to us now for generations and that we now are telling that story again because it's so vibrant. Um, and so might that story now come alive, God. First to us, God. You know, I think of my friends here and the places in our lives that are, yeah, dirty. We need your touch, God. Our hearts our souls, places of brokenness and loneliness and weariness and darkness. Thank you, God, that you come close to us and you're not afraid of those places. You're not offended or those places don't push you away, but you draw near. And thank you, you have the power to heal. God, would you then empower us also to do this work toward each other, with each other, in each other's lives, whether that's our spouse or our children, our neighbors, or this community, God. Empower us, God, to be servant people. We pray this with Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Amen.